Welcome to the AWS Tech Chat. We're solution architects based in APAC, and we help customers adopt the AWS Cloud Platform. In each episode, we talk about the latest and most interesting technical developments in the world of AWS Cloud. We bring you the AWS Roundup and deep tech dives into topics of interest. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to AWS Tech Chat, episode 30. Shane, welcome back to the show. It's been a while. It has been a while. Episode 30. Wow, Pete. You know, you're looking a little bit tired, Shane. You've got a, you're looking like you haven't slept enough. Well, have you been watching the World Cup, Pete? Is that why? Because I certainly have. It is, yeah. And look, I'm sure our listeners around the world have been. And, you know, lucky this is radio because you can't see these bags under my eyes. We've got wonderful faces for radio. <laughs> <laughs> Although we have been doing Tech Chat TV. So, by the way, guys, uh, um, one of the episodes is already up on the microsite. Um, we are working behind the scenes to get a few more up for you. Um, but speaking of, you know, speaking at various events, you've also been traveling, haven't you, Shane? I have, Pete. I've been to Sydney. I've been to Seattle recently. I've been to various places. Yourself? Yeah. Yeah, same. I've been uh, traveling to Sydney. I've been to um, Tasmania of all places. So hello to all of our listeners down south in Australia. And for those of you tuning in from overseas, uh, Tasmania is a tiny little island at the very bottom of the big Australian mainland. So Shane, um, the summit season is still going on. Uh, what else? If you want to come and see uh, AWS folks in the flesh, where can people come and see us? Where are we uh, hosting our next round of events? Yeah, look, there's a few in-person summits coming up in the next month. We're in New York on July 16 and July 17, Chicago on August 1 and August 2, and we have a startup day, Pete, in Boston on July 10. That's pretty cool. Yeah, so if you're a startup, come along and make sure you come and hang out. And by the way, uh, anything for the Australian listeners? Well, yes. For those in Australia, we have Dev Days in the world's most livable city, which is Melbourne, on August the 7th. And if you do happen to make it there, be sure to pop in to my session and come and say hello. Also, our uh, other co-presenter, Gabe, will also be presenting, and I'm sure he would love to see all of you. Indeed, indeed. and look, I'll be there as well. So uh, hopefully, um, you can see some of the hosts in the flesh. Now, uh, you know, reInvent, by the way, is the other key uh, event for us. It's in the calendar in November this year. It's late November. Um, are you going, Shane? Um, we'll see. Mm. I don't know at this stage to stay tuned well i've got my ticket so i'll certainly see you guys there um but also there is another event that uh, a lot of us have been involved in uh we've actually been doing a lot of recordings for this and that's aws innovate shane you want to tell our listeners what that's all about yeah so look if you can't make it to any of these online sorry in-person events that's right in the flesh you can join online to aws innovate which is our free online conference and it runs on july 19th so in effect, it's an online AWS summit with mm. 50 plus breakout sessions, uh, 10 tracks running through multiple time zones. And if you have direct access, sorry, and you have direct access to AWS Solution Architects to ask questions. Yeah, so there'll be moderators standing by talking to you guys. Um, so yeah, 50, 50 breakout sessions, 10 tracks, um, all of the AWS Tech Chat hosts, so Ollie, Dean, Gabe, uh, yourself, and myself, uh, are going to be there. And also Werner Vogels is going to be there as well. Mm. So uh, certainly well worth um, coming in and uh, sitting in a most comfortable chair, uh, tuning in <laughs> with, your <laughs> with your laptop, um, and uh, having a bit of fun without leaving the comfort of the office or your home. So Shane, it's always day one here at AWS. Um, what are some of the classic updates that we normally kick the show off with? Well, getting the episode started with some stats changes, and we all know that the AWS cloud isn't static, and you know this means expansion. And as usual, our edge locations have grown. You know, 
when I speak to customers or doing presentations, recently I started saying 115 plus and I might just need to adjust that soon to 120 plus as that figure is now at 119. Okay. So, you know, as we add edge locations, this translates into reduced customer latency as every edge location that we add increases CloudFront's capacity to serve and secure content and make it closer to users around the world. And of course, CloudFront is our content delivery network. Um, and also uh, in the same locations, quite often we have the uh, Route 53 service because uh, you know, DNS and uh, CDNs go hand in hand because uh, you know, DNS controls the flow and requests of, uh, of IP packets to the closest potential edge location. That is true. Mm-hmm. So how many cities have we got covered now and how many countries, Shane? 58 cities across 26 countries. And, you know, what's interesting in the last two edge locations that we added, we added one in Johannesburg in South Africa and mm-hmm. one in Bangalore in India, is that the edge location in Johannesburg is our first pop in the African continent. It is, actually. And a bit of, bit of trivia, you know. If you, ever, if you guys ever look at the... Um, um, you know, the sea, undersea cables. It's fascinating to actually watch how they circle around Africa. And uh, it's, it's an interesting data point that we're, Shane and I were talking about before the show around if you, if you actually have a look at it, the entire undersea cables circle Africa um, with uh, not a great deal of uh, transit uh, across the mainland continent of Africa, unfortunately. And, uh, you know, power and, uh, you know, um, the various different countries that are there makes it really hard to deliver connectivity. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, power that we all take for granted um, doesn't always flow in some of these places. Yeah. So it's very hard to uh, run regions and things like that. So, uh, so hats off to um, you know the CloudFront team, and uh, yeah, hopefully there'll be more of those coming to reduce the latency in that part of the world. Fantastic. All right, so let's jump into a topic here, Pete. Yeah, so some cool new stuff. Let's talk about some cool new stuff. So look, we deal with lots of customers from startups to the largest enterprises and a question that encompasses all companies mm-hmm. is account designer setup. You know, it's a conversation I have regularly with our customers. Yeah, and look, we've got customers who have one account set up and one account and loving it, um, but that doesn't actually work for everybody, right? Yeah, not at all. It's not a one size fits all approach. And you know, this often consumes a lot of time at both the customer end and at the solution architect end. Mm. You know, trying to nail down the best account structure VPC design, billing, etc. And we do, have, we do have a lot of best practices, but uh, again, like you said, they don't quite fit everybody. If you're a mid-sized organization, you may not want the same landing zone as uh, you know, a multinational, global, top 100 business. Um, but you do want to have security, obviously, and flexibility to grow and evolve over time. Yeah, and look, there are many levers within mm. AWS, and it is growing every day, you know, giving a plethora of different design choices. So, so what have you got for us, Shane? What, what, have, we, what have we done? Well, we have introduced something called AWS Landing Zones, which is centered around CloudFormation that helps customers quickly set up and a secure multi-account AWS environment based on our distilled best practices. Yeah, and that's, you know, when, you th- when I think about a landing zone, I always think about, um, you know, a friend of mine used to fly a little Cessna, a little, little single-engine plane, and uh, we took off uh, this little airfield, this landing strip, this landing zone was tiny. It was, uh, it was grass that was more cut than the rest of the grass. And, you know, that, that actually, be- that airfield became much larger over time. And I think, you know, it's a great analogy for the landing zones that customers start off with. They start with, uh, you know, one or a couple of accounts, and they then grow into something bigger. And uh, the AWS landing zones that we've uh, just mentioned um, create some really interesting features for you, like something called the account vending machine. So Shane, you want to tell us what the uh, AVM actually is? What does that actually do and how does it help customers with landing zones? Well, 
the AVM or account vending machine leverages a AWS single sign-on for managing user accounts. Mm -hmm. And the environment is customizable to allow customers to implement their own account baselines through a landing zone configuration update pipeline. So like most of our solutions, it's deployed as a CloudFormation stack and it really distills you know, these practices that we preach. So what it will do is create four AWS accounts in order to create this account vending machine. And okay. if you think about it in a hierarchical fashion, at the top, you're going to have your main organizational account, mm -hmm. which is going to contain like... The core things, The right? core things, like you know, okay. your code pipeline, your integration with your potentially your um, local on-premise directory or in-cloud directory. Oh, you can actually, yeah, you can actually, you know, federate to your on-premises. So, okay, so you've got your identity in there, you've got your AWS organizations, which you can actually then use to spin off other accounts. Um, so that's one account. What are the other three? So we have a shared services account, which is going to contain, you know, things that are common mm -hmm. for your organization. So, you know, it could be Active Directory. It could be, you know, maybe your patching, um, it might be like a WSUS. Um, you know, it could be your logging, your network baseline. Mm. Yeah, it, fundamentally, I think it's probably worth, but best to say that, you know, in that account, you want to have uh, common IT services that are pretty much used across the organization. So you might have your continuous integration servers in there, you know, or any other core infrastructure, other systems that um, kind of get shared across the, uh, the organization. Um, so that's, okay, that's a shared account. Um, what about the logging account? So the logging account is going to, contain a central Amazon S3 bucket for storing copies of logs being generated by the vendor account. So all these new accounts that you're creating mm -hmm. via the, the vending machine, the vending machine yeah. are going to then push their logs back, their CloudTrail, AWS config logs, etc., into this logging account. So it's like a security operations account fundamentally, right? Absolutely, yeah. Okay, and so then, so who's, got, who's got access to that? Well, it depends. So the security account is going to create read-only and full control, full access cross-account roles that can be delegated to appropriate parts of the organizations. So obviously, you know, we want to provide the right teams with the credentials they need to be able to access these logs in a least privileged manner. And of course, you can also tweak some of these stacks that get deployed, right? And uh, we actually give you a couple of um, interesting things in a logging account. Yeah, so what I like about the solution, it's proactive in the way it builds out using our best practices and it has feedback loops in place should something not be picked up either you know, during account creation or perhaps someone has modified it manually. So give me some examples. What, what does that actually mean in terms of feedback? So what this does is create about 30 predefined events such as root account login, console mm -hmm. sign-in failure, API authentication failures. Maybe someone's changed a security group, a knuckle or a VPC gateway. They're the kind of things that AWS landing zones automatically creates. Right, so you can then see what's changed and potentially take appropriate action as required via the notification mechanisms, yeah? There we go, yes. Okay, all right. So um, um, all in all, this seems like a very, very cool thing to get your hands on. Um, any customers that uh, come to mind that should jump on this straight away? I think customers, Pete, that are perhaps maybe, you know, greenfield and mm -hmm trying to implement a standardized pattern for deploying AWS resources should definitely take a look at AWS landing zones or perhaps even if you're not greenfield, remember this is cloud formation. Mm. So you can cut it up, you slice know, to it and slice it and dice it, it to yeah. meet your needs. So even if 
um, you're not going to be implementing the default AWS landing zones. There may be goodies there that you can extract and leverage in your own you know, mechanisms for rolling out and managing AWS accounts. Awesome. That's cool. And having uh, obviously lots of VPCs is very cool because you contain the blast radius and that vending machine um, you know, account can spin out new accounts uh, and hopefully have consistency because that's one of the biggest things a lot of our customers discover is uh, once they go beyond uh, a certain number of accounts, consistency becomes a problem. So uh, yeah, organizations have been very useful and uh, helpful in having that spun up. So changing gears a little bit, Shane, mm. um, you know, I'm a, I'm a developer at heart and uh, I love API Gateway. It's, a, it's a one of the cooler services. I love API Gateway as well. And I think, you know, if you're, you know, buzzword bingo today, it's pretty hard to escape the term API. It's funny because it's actually in the Macquarie doc, uh, Dictionary uh, in the official list of acronyms. That's pretty pretty scary, right? It is. And, you know, CPU's even there as well. <laughs> there you go. More and more of the, uh, you know, IT buzzwords are popping up in the common man's language vocabulary. There we go. And it's in public dictionaries. How, that's how, who would have thought? Who would have thought? So, um, you know, API gateways are kind of critical for developers. They build a whole bunch of, uh, do all the heavy lifting of uh, management of the API. Um, you know, it's been around for a little while now. Um, you know, what's your favorite feature of that, Shane? I just like how quick and easy it is to roll out APIs with API Gateway. The fact that you can, you know, get a lot of the heavy lifting, so that's, you know, throttling, authentication, authorization, it just makes what was once a quite a hard problem that maybe was tackled differently by multiple teams within an organization, simple. So, so how would you explain this to your grandmother? I always, I always did the grandmother test, uh, <laughs> or your kids, in fact. Uh, you know, how would you All describe right. API Gateway? Because it's a, uh, you know, if, you, if you're in the tech industry, it makes sense. But if you have to explain it to um, somebody who's perhaps not as technical as, uh, as you guys listening to the show, how would you explain it? So do you like food, Pete? I love food. There we go. All mm -hmm. right. So imagine you're at a restaurant. Okay. And it's a great restaurant. Not too hard to do. Yeah. Okay. And the kitchen is part of the system that's going to prepare your order. So that's the back of house. Got that's it. That's the back of yeah, house. That's okay. where the magic happens. So what's missing here is the link to communicate your order to the kitchen and deliver the food back to your table. And that's where APIs come in. <laughs> you know, so that's the waiter usually, right? The, the waiter. Wait you know, the waiter is a messenger or API in this case. And he or she mm -hmm. is taking your request which is your order, mm -hmm. to the kitchen and telling the system what to do. So the waiter is then going to deliver the response back to you. And the response in this case, or the payload, mm -hmm. is going to be the food. The food, love it, love it. Actually, we could build on this some more. So if you just have the, the waiting staff taking your order and bringing your food, that's a standard model. But you can also implement a CQRS pattern <laughs> where you've got the, uh, the waiter taking the order and perhaps the, uh, um, the server bringing you the food. There you go. There you go. That should be in the uh, McCray Dictionary, like the definition. We'll uh, contact them and get them to add it in. All right, enough of our uh, sidebar here. <laughs> All right, level setting done, hey? Yes, yes. So um, what's with API Gateway? Well, you know, we just released edge optimized and regional based endpoints. Mm -hmm. what, what does that mean? Just, just to recap. Okay, uh, so, so we've got the API Gateway service. You know, you define your APIs, um, you make them available. And uh, what's the difference between the actual, you know, edge and uh, region? Well, the difference between edge and region is mm -hmm. with edge optimized endpoints for API Gateway, mm -hmm. they're fronted via Amazon CloudFront. Okay, so those, those pops we just spoke about at the start of the show. Correct. Right. Okay, cool. Whereas regional based endpoints are contained within an AWS region. And you know that improves performance, reduces latency for 
workloads or requests that are accessing a local endpoint. It makes sense. I mean, if you're going to ask the, the waiter and you have to, uh, you know, talk to them via, you know, uh, CloudFront, uh, you know, halfway across the world, that request still has to come back to the origin where it's actually being executed. And if you happen to have the, uh, the API um, gateway, you know, within region, then you're talking directly to that particular. Yep. It's almost like, you know, like, like shouting across the globe versus talking to the waiter. Yeah, very true. And, mm. you know, it's, it's also about understanding your traffic patterns and where your customers are. So, you know, depending on your requirements, you know, we give you options on picking the most appropriate deployment pattern for API Gateway. Cool. So, so that's the two we just talked about. What is the new third one we've just All announced? Right. This is this is pretty cool, guys. You're, you're going to love uh, um, what, um, you know, this extra mode of operation and private APIs mean. What is that? Well, yes, you've just stolen my thunder, Pete. So <laughs> you can now create private APIs in Amazon API Gateway, and those private APIs can only be accessed within your VPC using VPC endpoints. And, you know, customers absolutely love this. I've had three of my own customers reach out to me, mm -hmm. just, you know, basically saying that we've been waiting for this for so long and are absolutely thrilled that this is now here. It's a great feature. And, you know, as you guys probably all know, we 95% of our roadmap for all of our services is customer defined. So you tell us what you want. We work really hard to get it done and uh, deliver it to you. So that's really cool. So that means that I can now have, uh, it's like, is that like sort of sitting in the restaurant next to the kitchen? <laughs> is that the analogy we could use? So private endpoints, you're almost maybe sitting in the kitchen, uh, very close to where all the heavy lifting gets done on the back of house. Uh, so latency is um, super, super, super low, but also uh, you're in the inner sanctum, you're in the VPC, you are isolated from the big, bad internet. Correct. And, you know, and that's done using an ENI. So an ENI is what? An elastic network interface. Okay. That, you know, so walk me through this. So what do I do? So I set up an elastic network interface and what do I drop it into my VPC? Well, going back a step, the first okay. thing you're going to have to do is create your API. Right. So when you create your API in API Gateway, under your endpoint configuration, you get to choose out of three types now. Mm -hmm. So that is regional. Mm -hmm. Do you remember what this That's right, one edge. is? Edge. edge. Yeah. Good work, Pete. <laughs> and our new type, private. So Perfect. once you've defined your private endpoint, you then go into Amazon VPC and create an elastic network interface for your VPC endpoint. Right. Got it. Okay. And then what? So you got your, you got your, you got you got the setup. Okay. Mm -hmm. Once you've done that, you will receive um, your fully qualified domain name connection string for mm -hmm. your Amazon API gateway that sits within your private subnets within your VPC. Got it. So when okay. you when you create the VPC endpoint, you specify what subnets you would like the endpoints to be placed in. Mm -hmm. So in fact, you're not having one ENI, you might have multiple ENIs if you pick multiple subnets in correct. your VPC. That is correct. Excellent. And then cool. you can use resource policies, you know, to lock down access to API gateway even further, you know, and that may be based maybe like an IAM policy. It could mm -hmm. be um, IP restrictions and so on. Or user restrictions, potentially, right? User restrictions, yeah. Okay. Got it. Okay, awesome. So you, you now have access to your APIs into the VPC and you get all the, all the security and all the things that we're used to in terms of making sure. Just because it's happened, you are sitting in the kitchen, you still might not be trusted, right? <laughs> Correct. Correct. <laughs> we might not give you the knife and fork, but maybe give you a spoon, something uh, a little bit safer to play with. Awesome. Very, very exciting. And uh, look, uh, we're both Microsoft guys. We both have... Um, a lot of you know, experience playing with storage things and storage arrays. Um, and uh, the storage gateway is very popular 
um, with our customers, and it's been out for quite a while. Um, and I think you know you've been doing some really cool, clever, interesting stuff at home with Storage Gateway. So you want to tell us a little bit about your Frankenstein model that you've built with the Storage Gateway, yeah. NFS, and Samba, and you know trying to make all this stuff work together. Yeah, sure. So you know, I made a commitment to myself about two years ago when I uh-huh. joined this wonderful organization that I'm going to get rid of local compute at home. That's tough for an IoT guy. It's kind of tough <laughs> when you've got, you know, terabytes of, you know, photos and things like that, that, you know, with young kids, my wife is constantly, you know, manipulating data at home and, you know, connecting to the cloud in based on my internet connection at home, you know, there can be a little bit of latency. Well, at least uh, to my better half. Mm-hmm. So... Hey, the wife acceptance factor is a very important uh, totally. you know, acceptance criteria, also in my household too. <laughs> so I've been using storage gateway mounted locally okay. using the file gateway. Mm-hmm. But you know, up until, I was going to say today, up until about a week ago, you know, in early June. We released something. We released something, yeah. right? And that so was, what was that? We added another protocol that is supported by storage gateway. So storage gateway now supports native SMB. Which so, which means what? Which means that Windows clients can directly connect to Storage Gateway. So my Frankenstein system in mm-hmm. at home still is at the moment mm-hmm. is I am mounting Storage Gateway as NFS okay. on a Linux system and then using Samba to running on that to expose it as SMB so Windows, Windows laptops etc can you know, just SMB to the, the SIFS shares. So from a well-architected perspective, this is a multi-point of failure, Shane, is it not? Multi-point <laughs> awesomeness. Yeah, I'm not sure it's uh, actually well-architected, but, right. you know, this changes now. Okay, so tell us more a little bit about the, uh, the appliance. So, okay, so we've, it's still the same deployment model that everyone's used to, which is yeah, so, getting the VM and getting it running locally? Yeah, so, you know, VMware, Hyper-V, EC2, you know, standard storage protocol, still the same process. Right. Except the protocol list now has grown, as I mentioned earlier, to include SMB. Mm-hmm. And, you know, creating an SMB accessible share, it's a two-step process. So before you create an SMB share, you need to configure the file gateway SMB settings right. for either Active Directory or for guest access. And we, so if I don't have Active Directory, what are my options? Well, that would be guest access, but you can only do one at a time. And when I say guest, I mean using either no authentication or basic, just a simple password to authenticate to the SMB so share. So simple user with so, a password, got it. Yeah. Okay, so, so uh, and this appliance runs on what kind of underlying virtualization fabric? So it can be Hyper-V and it can also be VMware or you could just run it in EC2. You might have, you know, a case where you might have some Windows servers mm-hmm. needing a central SMB share. Sure. This could be an option. Perfect. Okay, so it's, it's, it's like almost like an EFS thing. For Windows. For Windows and on-premises. And for on-premises. Yeah, so nice nice little way of doing your backups, guys. Very cool. And what protocols for SMB does it support? It supports two and three. And, you know, and just, you know, to remember, you know, in an enterprise environment, most likely you want to use Active Directory. Mm-hmm. So in order to do that, you go through, you know, the typical process you would do to join any device to an Active Directory domain. So you enter, you know, the relevant credentials. Yeah. And after you've joined Storage Gateway, you can limit access by using Active Directory users and groups. So, you know, mm. the traditional way you would manage SMB shares today applies to using File Gateway. Yeah, that's awesome. So basically, it just becomes a plug replaceable way of, you know, getting lots of storage for a very low cost 
uh, and having it also highly durable sitting in S3. Correct. And you know that need to provide patching and doing that underlying heavy lifting has now been removed. Yeah, look, I, I still have a box under my desk at home uh, serving a lot of files around. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to be probably the next candidate after, uh, after actually going to deploy this locally. Mm-hmm. So that's storage. And, you know, it's so critical to so many of us uh, to make sure our data is safe and available and easily retrievable. Um, and if we were to change gears a little bit, um, I love the ALB service, Shane. I think it's really, really cool. Um, lots of our developers love it, and it's been out for a while now. We've added a whole bunch of cool features to it. Um, one that particularly is very you know, dear to both our hearts is, and we both lived through this, is the ability to bring in extra infrastructure, more servers to cope with traffic, right? Um, but there is actually an interesting problem that when you add a new server uh, that hasn't been, you know, it's just been booted up, uh, it's had no load on it, and you add it to a, a load balancer, it can get absolutely smashed, right? It can absolutely get smashed. And look, a few programming languages are probably worse than others. The I'm probably, yeah. I'm probably talking, <laughs> you know, to the .NET and Java community out there. You know, you need to build up a compilation cache, which is great for performance, but they can often be criticized, you know, for their cold start performance, you know, and rightly so, it can be painful. Yeah, but once they warm up, they, they, they perform really well. So right? it's a trade-off, really, between yeah. slow start performance versus runtime performance. So, you know, if you're not familiar with languages that do need to do a pre-compilation, as an example, you know, if you were to ask a .NET application what 1 plus 1 is, it'll calculate the answer, store in its compilation cache, and the next time it's asked, it's going to grab that result from the cache. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that was that's really... That's simplistic, That's though. really simplistic, yeah, very simplistic okay? Yeah. But if you did that with, say, PHP each execution would result in the PHP script engine having to compile that answer. Yeah. Again, depending on the actual runtime environment, because there are now switches and tweaks that you can pre-compile some of these things in some of your programming languages of choice. But fundamentally, the, the, the issue here is that we're calling out is that, hey, there is actually a, you know, a fair bit of CPU cycles you need to run through before your machine's in a reasonable steady state to be capable of taking you know, the full load that it might be getting hit with when it becomes, you know, a member of the uh, the other, you know, uh, nodes in a, you know, in a target group. Yeah, and look, um, depending on the programming language, sometimes pre-compilation may not even be an option. Of value, you know, yeah. The uh, application may not be designed in a way where pre-compilation is even possible. And you've lived through this, right? And I've I mean, lived you've, through this, yeah. yeah. So, you know, as I mentioned in a past episode, in a previous role, I worked for one of Australia's largest, uh, busiest trafficked websites. Yeah. Running .NET. Running yeah. .NET. On Windows. On yeah. Windows. So you notice you've lived this. Yeah. You know, and one of the issues we faced was the ability of placing machines into a web farm. And you know, it would get to a point where the machine would go in and IIS would eventually go, ah, I give up and start throwing 503 errors because it doesn't have enough time to go through the pre-compilation. And I had to write some um, pretty uh, funky code to, you know, ease this in. I was parsing IIS logs, looking for um, dynamic .NET or ASPX uh, gets, automatically hitting them. And then when the machine went into farm, it would monitor via a WMI counter the number of requests that are queued. And if it approached a set limit where we knew where IS would fall over, it would be taken out of farm, would be put back in, taken out, put back wow, in, that's taken pretty, out, that's put pretty back in. aggressive, pretty scary scripting stuff. Because if you're looking at the uh, you know, WMI, by the way, guys, is the uh, Windows Management and Instrumentation Performance Counter. And you'd actually track how it's going. So literally, you'd be push, putting it in and out of service. 
taking it in wow. and out, yeah, purely to ensure that there was no bad end user experience. Because at that time, our load balancers, this was on premise at this stage. Mm-hmm. Um, on premises. On S. premises. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, did not have the capability to perform slow start. So what has the ALB done, Shane, to actually make this go away a little oh. bit now? Because this, this is what we're talking about, right? This is where we're slowly converging on what the new feature is. I know. ALB, <laughs> where were you three years ago? <laughs> All right. So ALB has just added a functionality called slow start. Mm-hmm. So slow start, you know, hopefully is pretty self-explanatory, but it allows you to add new targets without overwhelming them with a flood of requests. Got it. So with slow start mode, the target warms up gradually before accepting their fair share of requests based on a ramp up period that you define. And what's that? What is that period? That can be between 30 seconds all the way up to 15 minutes. That's pretty significant. It is. And you know, during that time, the ALB is linearly going to increase the number of requests sent to the target group um, up to its fair share during the slow start ramp up period. And it will exit once that period elapses. So when you say exit, you mean it stops, you know, ramping up, it just gives you the full load. It will be the full load at that time. Right. So you had to play with this yet? I have actually. Mm -hmm. And look, something to note is, you know, when you set the slow start for an empty target group, so an empty target group, your ALB with no targets registered. Okay, so zero instances. Zero instances. So if you have zero instances and you add an instance, that target will not enter the slow start mode. It's only going to enter slow start mode for newly registered targets when there is at least one or more registered targets that are not in slow start already. Okay, so let me get this clear. So if I have an autoscaling group uh, which doesn't have anything in it and it's receiving traffic, then those, that the first instance doesn't actually benefit from the cold, you know, the, uh, the gradual uh, load of traffic. It's instance two, three, four, and so forth that will actually benefit yeah. from uh, that definable 15, sorry, 30 seconds to 15 minute um, warm up um, you know, gradual traffic delivery. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And you know, what this is really perfect for is you might be doing a deployment of a new code base and, you know, it might not have breaking schema changes where, you know, you're just slowly taking the machine out, mm-hmm. updating the code base, putting it back in. So doing a blue-green deployment, like A-B a, testing, yeah. Yeah, that's where, you know, this really comes into play. Nice. So actually, so you could detect failures uh, on a very small subset of traffic and then potentially pull that instance out of service. Correct. So, and if... During the slow start period, I think mm-hmm. worth noting, if during the slow start period, if that target instance becomes unhealthy yep. and then becomes healthy again, the slow start yeah. st- period starts from scratch again. Oh, so it re- re- starts again. Okay, it does so start if, you, again. if you stop handling traffic and you, you mark this potentially not being able to cope and you come yeah. back into service, nice. Okay, so, so it restarts. Makes yeah, perfect so sense. If you're, having a, if you're having a hard time dealing, then you probably have, gonna have a hard time doing it again. Mm. Nice. And is this available now? It is available today in all regions that have application load balancers. Yay. So really awesome. Cool. So ah. speaking of food, Pete, you often hear the saying, open source is eating the world. <laughs> well, you also often hear that software is eating the world, period, right? And uh, when you think about um, the consumption and the appetite that people have for flexibility um, and technology really is disrupting you know everyone's lives you know the app on your phone is changing your life and obviously there's a back end of that mobile app most likely sitting in the cloud um, hey it really is disrupting the world absolutely um, and, you know, and it's changing you know there is a seismic shift I think particularly towards open source that's gathered momentum and for me you know what really hit home is about a year ago, I was doing a hackathon for a for Melbourne University. Right. Hey guys, hope you're listening. 
Yes. Um, hello, Melbourne Uni. <laughs> and, you know, the tooling they use is very different to when maybe you and I... You Work know, universities. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, gone are the, the Oracles and the Microsoft SQL these days. It's and the punch cards. I'm, I'm and, older than you are. <laughs> and the punch cards. There we go. What about uh, COBOL? Yeah, I, I have written like many, many lines of COBOL, in fact. Did you do any Fortran? I did do Fortran. Ooh, there yeah, we go. I've done a lot of crazy things in my life. But uh, look, the point is, you know, the world is changing. And, yeah. uh, you know, I think, you know, innovation in, in languages is actually a, a good reflection of what's happening in technology. You know, you think about languages like, um, you know, Python in Go, um, you know, a whole bunch of, you know, new things that have been appearing, you know, um, TypeScript, you know, built on top of JavaScript to provide object abstractions. Uh, it's, you know, it's really, really interesting. And a lot of that actually has its roots really in the operating system like Linux. Mm. So, Pete, yeah. tell us about Linux. Yes, so, so hi, Linus, if you're listening. I, I doubt you are, but in case you are. Uh, look, we're big fans, big, big fans <laughs> of Linux. And uh, I started my Linux career with Slackware. I don't know if you can remember that far back. Slackware, live CD. I actually, you know, downloaded. Um, yeah, so it's definitely showing my age. So, look, um, Linux is a very popular OS. Um, it's um, very lightweight. If you don't like something, you get to recompile it. The sources are readily available. Uh, you know, I, again, I, I have hacked Linux kernel modules in the past, so uh, you can get really dirty and amongst the code and make appropriate tweaks to your particular use case. However, um, there's been a big shift towards you know making Linux a little bit more usable. So people have been standardizing it. We've had Red Hat. You know, a whole bunch of different um, market players have been trying to standardize this thing. And to be honest, you know, Amazon really is no exception. We've had Amazon Linux available in AWS for a very long time, and many of you are already using it. Um, and I'm pleased to say that Amazon Linux 2 is now being made available on EC2. Uh, in fact, it's not just available on EC2, you can actually get it and download it in various different um, you know, um, image formats uh, that run on KVM, your VirtualBox, your Hyper-V, on ESX, and we also make it available in a, a Docker container, which is kind of cool, mm. it's a Docker image, so you can actually get it running very quickly, um, even on your laptop. And, and Shane, how often have you heard from developers, you know, it works on my machine, uh, but it does not work in the cloud, and they blame everything from the kitchen sink, uh, and this, in many ways, will actually, I think, help developers, um, you know, be able to be more consistent in the dev test cycles prior to moving to the cloud if they are still developing on premises. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I probably don't have enough fingers on my hands to count the number of times it works on my dev machine, but not in production. Yeah, and look, Linux too does some really cool stuff, right? I mean. Um, now, it's also the same OS that you can, like said, you can run on, on your devices locally, but it's the you know, the same kernel and same infrastructure uh, that runs on EC2. You know, it comes with you know uh, the new compiler to GCC and the, the the C runtimes and the bin tools and all the latest uh, software packages and uh, you know um, mechanisms you generally would use via YUM package manager to get all your updates. Um, and what's also important to us is security. Right? It's, it's, it's what we focus on predominantly. And uh, again, it's no, by no exception here, you know, we provide some really strong support for um, you know, uh, SSHing into the machine, making sure all the critical packages are installed and available uh, to minimize the, the attack vectors that uh, you know, some of the nefarious actors that are out there might actually mm -hmm. be applying to try to crack into an operating system. Um, and what's also cool about this is that we are providing the long-term support 
Yeah, which is uh, pretty impressive. What that means is for the uh, next five years from release, we're actually going to support all those packages. So that gives you more stability. Uh, and as you guys know, in the Linux world, things change really rapidly. Uh, so we're actually making a line in the sand and saying, hey, we're going to provide you long-term support in case you need, need it, Mr. Customer. So how's that, Shane? That is great. The, the, I think the LTS, the long-term support, really enables customers to adopt Amazon Linux, you know, and have that confidence that there's going to be security updates made available, you know, mm -hmm. for five years to come. And, and how often have you heard, this is the year of the Linux desktop? <laughs> I've heard it a lot. Every but year for the last few years? Year. Yeah. But look, maybe in 2018, it will be. And to be honest, I think it might be. That's because I'm also very pleased to let you guys know that... Um, Amazon Workspaces, which is basically a virtual desktop as a service, which in the past has been supporting Windows, now supports Amazon Linux too, which is pretty cool. So, you know, if you were to pick uh, that as the OS of choice when you're defining your, um, uh, your Amazon Workspace operating system, which you basically say, I want this performance type, so number of cores, this, this much memory, this much disk space, um, you can now click and select Linux and what we're going to give you is uh, LibreOffice, Firefox, Evolution for Mail, Pigeon for IM, GIMP for image manipulation, a whole raft of other desktop utilities and tools uh, that you may actually use. And uh, the desktop experience is the, is the mate experience. Uh, which is very popular across uh, a large number of uh, different Linux uh, repos already. Uh, so uh, it's a pretty common experience that you may already be running uh, on your desktop. Now it's becoming available as a service under Workspace Exchange. Yeah, it is. And look, it's Linux. So if you're not happy with those packages that are provided on the Linux workspace, you can always add more You know, via an, a yum repository or via an RPM. Yeah, look, you know, or just copy the files yourself and do whatever you need to or fork from Git and uh, clone and um, do a build all. I thought you were going to do a make, yeah. Yeah, a make, yeah, exactly. Yes, all those things. And make look, install. The other cool thing is that um, because it's Amazon Workspaces, um, you know, it does also allow you to join Active Directory. So whether it's on-premises or via the AD connector um, to... Um, uh, you know, oh, Microsoft Active Directory is a service that we have. That Linux uh, workspace will actually have that single sign-on experience managed by Active Directory. So you can basically have your users sharing identity through AD and log into Windows workspaces or, in this case now, Linux to, um, you know, desktops, which is kind of cool in many respects. And this is available today in all regions where Amazon workspaces is available. Mm, awesome. So Shane, have you, have you spun one up yet? I haven't. Ah, I Something did just last night, in fact. <laughs> so there's a lot of cool other stuff, Shane. Plenty of what cool else do you other like? stuff. All right. I like Jupyter Notebooks. You like Jupyter Notebooks? I like Jupyter Notebooks. I'm becoming more familiar with Jupyter Notebooks. Well, look, you know, when you talk about open source, you know, eating the world, uh, you know, Jupyter Notebooks are kind of in a category. It's, you know, it's an open source web app that you uh, get to use to create and share, you know, your documents that generally contain, you know, live code, equations, visualizations, all, all sorts of things you want to put in there. And yeah. it's quite often it's a big part of, uh, you know, SageMaker, which is our AI as a service. Uh, we, we have Jupyter Notebooks, which are managed for you. But uh, Notebooks, 
books are really cool because um, they let you experiment yeah. and experiment in real time. They are fast becoming, you know, a staple of the modern day data scientist. Oh, so, oh you said it so well. There we go. <laughs> and, and look, it's you know, I kind of look at it as it's uh, you know, I'm an old guy. I kind of look. It's it's like having the you know, people used to always experiment in the terminal console. Now you can do very similar things literally just inside your web browser. Why log in NSSH to a box when you can do it inside the browser? So you know, these notebooks. Um, uh, are quite popular. More and more, like you said, data scientists are actually using them. Um, and uh, you know what we've also been doing is that uh, we now support Jupyter Hub on Amazon Elastic MapReduce release 5.14. Now, in a mouthful, what does that mean? It means that you can now have notebooks that are using the Spark framework. So, for those of you data scientists out there, you can now start using Spark queries on your Elastic MapReduce clusters, and you can use things like Scala. Uh, PySpark, uh, R, Spark QL kernels, uh, so that you can actually run your, you know, your Python jobs potentially, uh, and take advantage of the many popular data science libraries that are already pre-installed for you. Uh, so what does that really mean? It means that you can actually um, essentially uh, connect to the Elastic MapReduce file system, uh, which is basically based on top of Amazon S3, and use your Jupyter notebooks um, to, you know, with EMR 5.14 to be able to actually run your queries across very large data sets. So if you're a data scientist or even a developer, uh, you have the opportunity now to actually really fiddle uh, and experiment with many, many different bits of information. Uh, so uh, you know, if you are doing some data science, uh, this is very useful. And uh, from a, from a, you know uh, the perspective of being able to see what someone's been doing, because quite often you know if you let people loose on these things, they do make mistakes, and uh, you may not even know what they've actually done to your data lake or your or your system. So um, what we can also now do is that um, the uh, the uh, the feature that we've actually enabled is CloudTrail, uh, and what it will do is it'll actually track all of your requests and what's actually being done. So it's going to be able to audit your um, EMR file system sort of requests and features to get uh, you know consistent views of what's actually been done, uh, what's been run. Uh, as well as give you the ability to have, you know, S3 server-side and client-side encryption, as well as give you fine-grained controls of access to S3, which also controls all the bits of data that somebody could potentially be touching or seeing. So you can launch Jupyter Hub um, by searching Jupyter Hub from the list of applications to be installed when you configure and launch your next Elastic MapReduce cluster, Shane. That is awesome. You know, I really like the ability to, you know, to grab large data sets. That mm -hmm. in itself, you know, we're talking data science here, you know, ability to train and our models via large data sets. Having access to Amazon S3 is really a game changer. Absolutely. And um, I don't know if you guys noticed, but um, DeepLens is now available for you to buy off Amazon.com. Have you ordered yours yet? No, but ah, I believe you have. I have. Mine is somewhere between Sydney and Melbourne right now. It's uh, I've been eagerly waiting for it to, to arrive, but uh, some of the other guys here at the office have already got theirs. I'm sure I'll just take it and stick it under my desk once it arrives. <laughs> hey, you guys have pried out of my dead cold hand, Shane. <laughs> and look, it's a it's a great it's a great it's a great device. And for those of you. Um, who haven't seen Deep Lens, go check it out. Uh, we actually announced it at, uh, at reInvent. And uh, I don't know what, what we should really call it. Is it, is, it a, is it a computer with a camera or a camera with a computer, it's, Shane? It's um, amazing. You know, it's 100 gigaflops. So I don't know if it's a, yeah, a computer with a camera or compute with a camera. Mm. But what it is, it's really a pretty it's, powerful platform for experimentation uh, for, you know, you know, deep learning and being able to come up with um, the next generation of uh, of systems that are actually going to let you, you know, see the world 
Um, and we had some cool open source projects being built where people that actually used it um, to you know, read, read kids' books and do a whole bunch of stuff like that. Um, so it's kind of nice because uh, we now have even deeper support within DeepLens around TensorFlow, CAFE, and also expanded uh, MXNet layers. Uh, so it also integrates with uh, Kinesis Video Streams. And by the way, Kinesis, Kinesis Video Streams is one of our services which has been released a little, little while back where you can push live video raw data into the service and it will actually do an, an, uh, well, actually analyze what's in frame and give you visibility as to what's going on in there. So it's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. And we've added another sample. And yeah. samples are always a great way to help people get started. You know, you can either, you know, Hmm. leverage a sample or steal some of the code you know to build your own i and think it's better to steal i mean isn't there a phrase you know you know good artists create but uh, great artists steal Does that, that apply to coders yeah. <laughs> and you know the sample we've added in is for head pose detection here so you know we're not talking blue steel here so no no zoolander no zoolander <laughs> but you know this sample will use tensorflow to accurately detect the orientation of your head that is really, really cool. And it's, we've also added the expanded support for, um, for CAFE. So a lot of these machine building models um, that you're actually playing with are, are really, really interesting. And um, you know, in terms of layers, and layers are kind of important in terms of um, working with um, AI and deep learning. Uh, so we've also um, added things like support for deconvolutionization uh, of images for CAFE and for MXNet. And what that actually means, before you start Googling and uh, looking at Wikipedia, let me save you the trouble. Um, when you look at um, image analysis, you know, when you shrink things um, and uh, you know, if there's a lot of motion potentially, you, you do lose detail. Um, and uh, when it comes to image analysis through, you know, through AI, uh, it's really hard, right? So uh, often you shrink those images. So by decon, um, so deconvolution really is the ability to actually take an image and find as much detail as possible in it, right? So um, if you can actually support that in images, you can we can reduce the chances of getting false positives or false negatives uh, with your actual images. So it's a, it's actually pretty cool. Um, and also the ability to be able to, to now take um, live video streams directly into uh, recognition video stream is cool. Um, and finally, don't forget, you know, you, you can also, you know, collect images and push them into um, Amazon S3 and do, you know, uh, you know, recognition video over it too, Shane. Mm, that's really powerful. And look, lastly, one of the new features that was provided in the, in the last update was the ability to view the output of your projects over a browser. Yes, that's a good point. Because, uh, yeah, quite often people actually plug it into an external display uh, to see what's going on and uh, certainly see it inside the browser uh, is, is very helpful. Yeah, you know, so what this does creates a HTML boilerplate with an embedded player that connects to the deep lens and it can help you validate the models where text is overlaid on the live image. Wow. Very cool. So I can't wait to get my hands on it. And if you've already got it, um, let us know if you built some cool stuff. Um, we'd love to talk about your uh, your project. You know, feel free to share it with, with many others on the internet, on the interwebs. Um, but Shane, look, we're almost at time. Look at, look at it. It's like, wow. Very much so. So we've covered a lot today. We have covered a lot. It's been a huge episode. We had a wide range of topics. Yeah, like landing zones, pr you know, private API support for API gateway in your own VPCs. That is cool. We're going to help you, uh, you know, decommission your Frankenstein, you know, uh, <laughs> Samba NFS, you know, uh, you gonna, know, solution at home. You're going to decommission George. 
Has it got a name? It's got a name. Ooh, okay. So, so, so George, uh, you know, we, we were starting. The sunset period is certainly coming your way. Uh, we've talked about the uh, slow start support for ALBs where you can actually, you know, uh, gradually bring in an instance into service so that it can actually um, cope with the tsunami of traffic that mm. it might be receiving in a very gradual way. We've also talked about Amazon Linux too, Shane. Yes, it's reached LTS. Yeah, the long-term support, which is five years. And also, that is now part of the Linux workspaces. Now, by the way, if you do use workspaces with Windows, um, there is actually about a, you know, about around a 15% cost reduction if you do go to the Linux workspace. And finally, uh, the thing that I'm waiting for in the mail is my deep plans. Deep plans. So, yeah, lots of cool support there around um, you know, new, new models and being able to support uh, TensorFlow and also uh, directly plugging into uh, Kinesis video streams. Very cool. So right. Shane, thanks for joining me today. Thank you very much, Pete. And we look to forward to seeing you next time. All right, see you guys. Tune in and we'll hopefully be in your ears in episode 31. Take care. Bye. Signing off. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, tell your friends, tell your colleagues, and tune in again to learn about AWS Cloud. Please subscribe to AWS Tech Chat by visiting www.awstechchat.com.